Our scripture reading is also from the letter of Apostle Paul to the Romans. Romans chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Romans 10. 1 through 17. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Amen. May God bless His word read and proclaimed soon. Congregation. As we arrive in in Romans 10, um, many of us are familiar with with Romans, and you'll be reminded that what Paul is doing here is is summing up the great doctrine of salvation, which which he has presented from chapters 1 all the way to chapter 9, having brought um, uh, basically everything that God has done. He, he does begin with our utter need, the reality that we 
can do nothing. The reality that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He, he establishes the reality that there's nothing in man for the salvation of man. But then he begins expounding on everything God has done beginning with that great precious doctrine of God's righteousness that is revealed, it is is given to you by faith. Exactly what you don't have, God provides. And and He explains how He provides it through through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and then through, through this act of His, whereby you respond by faith, you have access to God, and because you have access to God, you have hope. And then he starts dealing with with intricate and precious doctrines, the doctrine of electing grace, that therefore it is God who has in His heart the desire to choose a people unto Himself, since it is true that if He left it to us, there would not be a single one in heaven. If it weren't for the doctrine of election, there would be no soul in heaven because of who we are by our nature. But God has done all these things. And then after expounding on what God has done, in chapter 10, in essence, we have it placed. You could say it in this way. Well, what is it that you and I are supposed to do? We can put it in that category of doing, but you need to understand what that category theologically means. It has nothing to do with a doing of achievement. It has nothing to do with a doing of merit. It is not something that you will do to, to merit this salvation that is so blessed and so precious that was put before you because He already knocked that off at the very beginning. But it's still something to be done. It's, it's to be done in the sense that it must be done or you will not be saved. It, it will not be done for you. It will not be done by proxy. Your father cannot do it for you. Your mother cannot do it for you. Your best friend cannot do it for you. We think of the reality that we have young men and women to profess their faith, but there's not a single soul who will profess this faith for them. It must be them. But this is where we get lost and we think of the doing like the Jews thought of the doing, And it was this achieving a righteousness on their own. And we're not talking about that doing. Perhaps one of the best ways to express what this doing is, is the word response. The word um, reaction. We have read from chapter 1 to chapter 9 what God has done. And now Paul will explain to you and me how we react to it. This reaction, in a sense, is an anti-work because we are looking at His work. We, we are even acknowledging in our plead for God to save us that we cannot work. But you see, I've, I've even mentioned something you do, a plea for God to save you. In, in the grammatical gram, grammar categories, that is an action It is something you do. Paul told us something to do. He said, verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And calling is something you do. 
This is what we need to understand. It's in the category of reaction. You are responding to all that God has done. And this is what we will be seeing in this sermon. Um, For the right response, we begin in our first point, the knowing the righteousness of God. You see how this is so much anti-work in the sense of our labor, in the sense of our achievement, in a sense of our thinking, how can I arrive in heaven by my effort and by my sweat? It begins with something you must know. And again, knowing is doing, and yet it has nothing to do with a doing in terms of achievement. It is a doing in terms of a responding. God has taught us in His Word, and this is what we know. Something about the righteousness of God is our first point. The second point, we will look at at this principle of believing in your heart. And then thirdly, the theme of confessing with your mouth. So first of all, the knowing the righteousness of God. You, You noticed in the text that there are two ways of understanding righteousness. Now let me read a few verses here. Um, in verse 2 is where Paul says, in a sense, something positive about the Jews. If you stop to think that the Jews were Paul's mortal enemies. They were after him to kill him. It began in his first missionary journey. As they arrived at that city where he was, they they, they stoned him. They're the ones who instigated the Gentiles to put him out of the city, and they stoned him. They always went after Paul to kill him. And yet Paul says here something um, surprisingly positive about them. But of course, it's it's not a perfect thing to say. It doesn't mean they're okay. Verse 2 says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. See, that's a good thing. But then he shows where it lacks, but not according to knowledge. See, it was something they didn't know. This is why our first point has to do with knowing. Not a single soul will ever be saved without first knowing something. This is exactly what Paul is saying. How will people believe unless they hear? See, unless they hear the gospel. So you hear the gospel and there's a knowing. There's something that you learn. There are facts. There are doctrines that are are heard. And and there was something that the Jews did not know. They they felt after God. They, They had this fear of God. They had a zeal for God. Paul knew because he was in that camp. He knew that it was in sincerity that he wanted to stamp out the the people of the way. He he knew that in his mind he was doing that in a sense toward God. But he now says what it was. It was not according to knowledge. And look at verse 3. Again, the reality of not knowing. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. And right there you have the two righteousnesses. And you right now either understand the righteousness of God or you are ignorant of it and you are trying to establish your own. Just as we say that the world has two kinds of people, those who are in the, in the wide way or the narrow way and there are those who love the Lord Jesus and those who don't, we can also say in the world there are those who understand righteousness of God and there are those who are trying to achieve their own righteousness. And what this means is that there there are two ways to understand righteousness. There's There's an earthly way, there's a heavenly way. 
there's a spiritual way, there's, there's a, 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 a materialistic, mechanical way. And, and it's understandable because we read the law. We, we just read the law and we, we read that we're not supposed to bear false witness. We're not supposed to covet. We're supposed to keep the Lord's Day, the Sabbath. And anyone can look at those and say, well, I will try to do that. And they will think, well, if this is what pleases God, I will try to please Him and go to heaven by, by doing them. And when that is your mind, that is a righteousness after the law. It is a zeal for God. But it's not according to knowledge. And the person who's doing that, as beautiful as it might be, someone who says, I want to obey the Ten Commandments, they're not realizing that if, if that is where they're at, there's also one big sin that's going along with all this quest for righteousness. It is the heart saying, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. So it's a proud man trying to be a holy saint. But the word pride keeps them in a worldly track that never goes to heaven. The greatest sin of this pride is that it might even see Christ and Him crucified there on Calvary's cross. It might even see that it got dark and that man on the cross felt forsaken of his Father. It might even hear something of the jeers of the people. And, and, and he might see something of the glimmering of that blood that shed from the cross. And yet that soul is saying, I can do it. See, it isn't good to be zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. Because if you do that, Jesus is nothing for you. You will be a proud spiritual man or woman. You will be a spiritual hypocrite. You might go to church your whole life and teach your children to go to church. But until you have the righteousness of God, you will never look to the Son of God. And see, this, this is why knowing the righteousness of God is of the essence. What is it that the Jews didn't understand? That as they read that law, it's not that God was just saying, just try not to lie, try not to use my name in vain. He was saying, you need my righteousness. You need to be perfect. You need to be completely holy. As holy as I am holy. And it's not that God didn't make that clear to His people. Remember, He said very often in the Old Testament, Be holy even as I am holy. And He said, Without holiness no man shall see the Lord. And so the Jewish man or woman knew this. It was in the Bible. Their their holiness was not just a, a better kind of man or woman. They needed the righteousness of God. And, and that, that has two meanings to it. It's, it's not two meanings so much, but it means two things in, in how we can understand it. It's a righteousness that, 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 that is His, like His level of purity, His level of holiness, His, His just precious spotlessness is the holiness you need. And it has to come from Him. That's why it's the righteousness of God. 
Because as you look at the law and you try to trail that and say, I will do it, you're trying to get that righteousness out of yourself, out of your merit, out of your mind. I'll try to be good. I'll try to be good. See, that's, that's, that's Mary's holiness, righteousness. That's Paul's righteousness. That would be Timothy's righteousness. And Paul was saying, all of you who are zealous for God, but not according to knowledge, you need God's righteousness. You're not just to try to do better. You need to be holy as God is holy. And see, once we have this knowledge, if if we understand this, we will give up our labor in trying to be righteous. Because we'll realize we'll never arrive there. We will never have that level of righteousness by simply trying harder. And we will start realizing if I'm trying harder, I'm thinking I can do it. I'm even proud while I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go to heaven and, and just going deeper and deeper in sin. Because I'm sinning against the God whose righteousness I'll never have through my merit. It's like going to my bank account to be as holy as God is in his heavenly realm. And I'm going here to an earthly bank. It'll never happen. So you see why knowing the righteousness of God was the essence. Now notice elements of of a step here. When you know the righteousness of God, it will cause you to cease establishing your own righteousness, you you will understand why you're not saved by works. It'll become clear. And you will also cease from not submitting to God. Because did you notice what, what Paul was saying? That while they were ignorant of God's righteousness, verse 3, it says, and going about to establish their own righteousness, see, that, that sounds good, they're trying to be good, but while they're doing that, it says, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You know, a, a marked thing about um, this whole passage is how much we learn here about faith about what faith is. And this leads us to our second point, believing in your heart. As I read chapter 10, um, maybe you have not noticed, but this is a chapter, you could call it a primer on faith. We are hearing many definitions of faith in in a precious, natural, beautiful way. This is what's good about a good teacher. And Paul was inspired of God. He was a wonderful teacher. And everything he wrote in the scripture is perfect teaching. And But what you notice, a good teacher will teach very hard things. And students won't even notice they're hard. But he's learning. She's learning. Let me tell you what he's been saying about faith. In verse 4, he explains what you are to have faith in. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Christ. If you summarize what you're to believe in, it is the person and work of Christ. You could say that also here he explains the relationship between the word and faith. Um, boys and girls, why, why, why do we read the Bible? Why here, here we are for an hour and a half or so of worship, and the main thing we do is spend time in the Bible. 
Why? Look at verse 17. So then faith cometh, cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. What's the relationship between faith and the word? You will never, ever, ever have faith without the word. Because faith is based on what you hear. And again, how you respond to it. That's what we learn here. What else do we learn about faith? He explains the relationship between confession of faith and faith itself. You saw the verses. We, our next point will be about confession. And, 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 and we'll see here attention. Um, we're thinking, wait, we, we've already been seeing that it's not what we do that saves us. But we're reading here that if, if you don't confess Christ as Lord, you are not saved. And so is confession something we must do in order to be saved? And is that an action? Look, look how beautiful that we find here the, the principle being taught. We start by knowing. We know the righteousness of God is what we need. This causes us to acknowledge and say, Lord, there's nothing I could ever possibly do. We read Romans and we hear God saying, this is what I have done. And look to Calvary and respond to what you see. And so you respond by faith. You trust that the man who died on Calvary's cross is a savior of sinners. And if you have true faith, it's like faith will now respond And you respond by confessing. Now read pretty soon a a beautiful quote from Calvin where he shows this. Confession flows out of faith. Confession does not save us. Because it is a work. But see, it's already a work out of true faith. And faith is not a work. It's a response. The work is all that we learn. It's Jesus and what he did. So we know God's righteousness. He presents us Christ. You respond by faith. And if you have true faith, you'll confess Him. So in our third point, when we go to there, we'll see that confession of Christ is is an outflow of true faith. And so we're learning all these things about faith. Um, Who you are to be faith in. uh, Who you are to have faith in. the, the, The relationship between the Word of God and faith. The relationship between confession and faith. And in verse 10, he explains the relationship between your heart and faith. And how you you profess your faith, but we realize in in verse 10 that the heart has to be involved. Verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 10 is showing very clearly, we're not speaking of something mechanically, that, that the moment you say the word, there's a magic that happens. No, it must flow from a heart that is acknowledging all this, a heart that knows I have no righteousness of my own. I'm not going to go about trying to find it, trying to do it. I'm going to see that what God needs, what requires is His righteousness and the only provision is in Christ. So I'll respond by faith. And now I, I want to confess Him the rest of my life. And then there are all these figures of faith. Um, figures of what faith is and figures of what faith isn't. Let me just run them by you. The true faith is a zeal according to knowledge. And we know this because false faith is a zeal after God, but not according to knowledge. In verse 3, we learn that true faith is like a submitting to the righteousness of God. Because Paul spoke of the Jews, because they don't have faith, they are not submitting to the righteousness of God. 
Have you ever thought of that? If, if there's someone here who knows you do not have faith, you, you need to start speaking theologically, biblically. If you do not have saving faith, God's word is saying you are at this moment not submitting to the righteousness of God. That's what not having faith is. This is what Paul says about the Jews. Yes, it is a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They're not submitting themselves into the righteousness of God. But true faith is submission to the righteousness of God. Because it's a heart that says, I'll never have righteousness. I've looked to the one who's given me his son, and he is my righteousness. See, all of these things are being learned in in this chapter. I, I, I want to go... Um, just, just as headings and with a few words, looking at what you are to believe. Um, this is the, the main thing, right, that we're speaking of. Thou confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. And, and, and I want you to see here that what Paul is doing is giving us the resurrection of Jesus as a summary He's not saying that we can leave everything out about Jesus. As long as we believe in Jesus as being resurrected, we will be saved. This is what, I've mentioned this before in some sermons. Sometimes one of the doctrines are singled out, and it's typically the resurrection, as a summary of everything about Jesus. And so this is a good exercise, especially on a day in which we have confession of faith, we will look at six key doctrines, all revolving Christ, that you must believe. And, and, and we will see that they, they all are derived from this very reality. And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. The, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is intricately connected to all of these other doctrines. So when Paul says to believe that he, was, uh, that he arose from the dead really means everything about Jesus, the true Jesus. So the first thing that you must believe is the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when Paul says that we must believe that Jesus arose from the dead, implied in this is that you believe in a divine Jesus. Um, the divinity of Jesus is what made the resurrection of Jesus possible. He would not have risen from the dead even through his own power. Yes, the Father was involved and the Spirit was involved, but he was also involved. He said, the Father gave me commandment to take it up again after he would die. And he did so because he's divine. So, young men and women, as you are here wanting to confess your faith in Jesus, it must be settled in your mind that you are confessing a divine Jesus. A Jesus who is eternal, who existed even before he came. And who, as we find in Colossians especially, he's the image of the invisible God. That... that in Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. 
that, that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So the divinity of Christ is what you and I must believe in order to be saved. Because a, a Jesus who in some churches theology is not divine is not the true Jesus, not the biblical one, but of their own um, imagination. And then the second thing to believe about Jesus is the humanity of the Lord Jesus. Even, even as we submit to the divinity of Jesus, we do so acknowledging that He is human as well. This is not new, right? You, you, you have been hearing in so many sermons throughout your, your Christian lives the divinity and the humanity of Christ. We, we believe in both. Jesus is human even as He is divine. He was born of a virgin. He was the seed of David. He was from the branch of Jesse. And as we read in Philippians, being in the form of God, though it thought it not robbery to be equal to God, that's His divinity, but made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So that baby um, in the manger was a human baby. The, the man who wept before Lazarus's tomb shed human tears. And the man who died on the tree shed human blood. And when they, when they buried the Lord Jesus, it was a human body. And this reality, His human soul at the time of His death went to be with the Father. That was a human soul that Jesus had, even as He had a human body. Now, let's connect it to the resurrection. Um, the divinity of Christ is what makes resurrection possible The humanity of Christ is what makes the resurrection even a miracle. Um, If if God came to the world and God were to die in a way that, that, that they could speak of and then He arose, it really wouldn't be a miracle. But we're speaking of Jesus, the man who arose from the grave, and that is a miracle. The resurrection makes, the the, the divinity of Christ makes resurrection possible. The humanity of Christ makes the resurrection a miracle. And this leads us to the third thing that you are supposed to believe about Jesus, and it is his miracles. And I single out his miracles because this is what Jesus did. When he was here on earth and he was speaking, and, and this is the thing that made it hard for people to believe in Jesus, he looked so human. Even as Philippians says, he came as a servant. He was a, even a lowly kind of human. He, he wasn't even a human that would give a hint in invisible eyes that had no faith. Eyes who had faith saw the divinity in him because they saw in all the majesty and all his holiness. But eyes without faith just saw him so human. Jesus said this at one point in John 14, 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. He was was saying, if if you look at me and all you think is a mere human, and you can't understand that I could be the Messiah, well then think of the people I have raised from the dead. Think of those blind men that I had made see, and look at those with, with leprosy that I have healed, and think of when I walked on the water the other day, and when I multiplied bread and fish to thousands of people. 
or those people with demon-possessed conditions, and I delivered them. Those were the works. And Jesus is saying, let that permeate your mind to believe in me. It's like the miracles are a gateway to believe Christ because you see what Christ did and then you look at Jesus and say, if you did this, then you must be the Messiah. The miracles. It's sad to think that there are institutions that call themselves churches that don't believe the miracles of Jesus. So those are not true churches. The divinity of Christ makes resurrection possible. The humanity of Christ makes His resurrection a miracle. The resurrection is the most glorious miracle. And now fourthly, the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to believe in the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus. And... and, Immediately here, you see the necessity. How can you believe in the resurrection without believing that he died? Now, I was shocked one day as I spoke to a Muslim friend in in college, and he was asking why Easter is celebrated by Christians, and I explained to him it's it's the day that we celebrate that Jesus arose from the dead. And he said, but how is that possible? Because in our teaching, he, he he was translated from the cross to heaven immediately and he never God would never allow his son to die and I and, and it was I was shocked to think there are millions and millions of people whose whose theology indoctrinates them to think Jesus never died and when you think of of protestant believers or par, pro, protestants who confess they're christians they hardly ever focus on the sufferings of Jesus they just want to think of heaven. They want to think of the glory. They want to think of the miracles. They skip the reality that he was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You know, young men and women, is this the Christ you profess today? The Christ who is the man who most deserved the name, man of sorrows. Never in this world has any soul ever suffered like Jesus. For the sins of many. And in the most intimate sense, understand for. Because Jesus suffered as a sin offering. Now I can understand there's a man here and he's defending people who are criminals and then he ends up receiving the brunt of the law because he's trying to defend them. And you could say, well, that man suffered for them and for their crimes. Even if they put him in jail for it, those crimes are still theirs. And they will still have to answer to God. But Jesus on the cross became a sin offering. No soul has ever been made an offering for sin. No man has ever been wounded for the people's transgressions or bruised for other people's iniquities or scourged for other people's sins. Only the Lord Jesus. And you have to believe that He suffered and died. And again, it is his suffering and death that even makes his resurrection possible. Do you see how the connection is there? The divinity of Christ 
makes the resurrection possible, that humanity makes it a miracle. When you think of the miracles, that's the grandest miracle. When you think of his death, well, that's what makes us await his resurrection. And then there's really two more things to believe. One is, of course, the, the resurrection itself. And, and together with that, we put the ascension of Christ. When, see, when Paul says that we, you have to believe that God raised him from the dead, connected to that is that, that then he went to heaven. The, he ascended into heaven. That is one more point of doctrine that we believe in, that he ascended into heaven. And there were witnesses um, that he died, and there were witnesses after he came back to life. The, the chief priests and Pharisees only rested on the Sabbath day because they were certain of his death. And those soldiers were only bribed by those very chief priests because they were certain of an empty tomb. It's amazing all the witnesses of his death and his resurrection. Pilate only gave leave of the body of Jesus because he was certain of his death. And the disciples, they finally left their place of hiding because they were certain of his life. See, literally, the disciples thought it is safe to leave our hiding place now because our Savior who had died is now alive. This means as we're living our lives proclaiming this Christ, they can kill us at any moment. We will see him all the sooner. His resurrection gave them leave of their fears. Believe the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the suffering and death of Jesus, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and the last thing to be believed. And, and, and it's interesting, as, as I was putting this list together, I, I, I thought of Paul. We, we are studying Acts, and remember in Athens, when Paul is there preaching the gospel, and he presents Christ first as Creator... And then he does say that now God is demanding from all men everywhere to repent. And he says, this is why. Because this man whom I'm speaking to you about who resurrected. Remember, he had been speaking about the resurrection of the dead. And so he brings Jesus there. But then he goes immediately to judgment day. And he says, this world shall be judged by that man who arose from the grave. The judgment Paul, he, he was not just, tr- you could say he was and he wasn't. He, he wanted to woo them to Christ, but yeah, he was technically in a sense scaring them to Christ. He was making those men and women to understand that not a single one of those idols upon those altars, except for the God who's represented for the idolless altar, that's the God you need because he sent his son who died and who is our only Savior. And that very man will come back to judge the living and the dead. And boys and girls, if you hear from pastors and from sermons that there is a hell for all those who do not believe in Jesus and you feel afraid, let that fear cause you to flee to Jesus. That fear is not bad. It's good. We should all be afraid of hell. The world does so much damage to try to make people think hell does not exist. And Satan doesn't exist. But the Bible makes clear Jesus is the one who preached most about hell and this day of judgment. 
and belief that Jesus will come back may be for some hearts that what causes you to say, I need to be in good terms with the judge. And this very one who will be the judge is the one who died for sinners. Isn't that wonderful to think that if you see that judge, but you know that he died for you, that will be a day of glory and of joy, not of sadness and sorrow. And today is the day to believe in Him, to trust in Him. Now, these are the things to believe. These are the things we are to trust. And, and, and I want to read here um, a, a quote from Frederick Godet, because in, in regards to all that we're to believe, we, we saw what Paul said. He said... In verse 6, but the righteousness which is of faith, so the true faith, this is what it will not say. See, it says, I mean, this is what it says. Say not in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ from the dead. And we look at this and we think, well, what does that really mean? And, and in essence, Paul is simply saying this. If you have true faith, you will not be thinking in terms of what you are to doing in the greatest of extremes. I, I want to go to heaven, so I will ascend there. Or I must repent of my sins and I will descend deep. That's not what true faith says. Because if you speak that way, you are despising the one who did everything, even Jesus. And and Godet puts it so beautifully. He says, O thou who desires to reach the heaven of communion with God, say not, how shall I ascend to it? Or as if it were necessary for you yourself to accomplish this ascent on the steps of your own obedience. To ask who will do it, Or how shall I do it? To ask such a question is to deny that Christ has really done it. It is to undo, at least so far as you are concerned, what He has done. You whom your sins torment, say not any more. Who shall descend into the abyss there to undergo my punishment? Again, to ask this is to deny that Christ did it. And then Paul adds, the word is nigh to you, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Paul is bringing here something of attention. And it's all because he's already dealt with this. He's already said that faith is impossible for you and me to achieve. But now that he's speaking of how we're to respond, he's really in essence saying that faith is easy. Because since it's not a matter of your work, since it's not your sweat, it's easy. You look to Jesus and you respond. Think of it right now. Respond to Jesus. Either raise your fist and say, crucify him, Or join right now with the disciples who look to Him and say, You are my Savior. With a hard understanding, you cannot produce it. Your sins have made you where you cannot even choose. Paul dealt with that. 
So now that he's dealt with that, he's basically saying the word is nigh. It's in your heart. It's in your lips. How will you respond to this Jesus that I'm putting before you? Will you take him? Godet continues. He says, Nigh thee, near you, signifies of possible and even easy accomplishment. Godet was a very reformed Calvinistic preacher. Salvation thus appears to us as perfectly ripe fruit which divine grace places before us and on which we have only to put the hand of faith. To Christ belongs the doing to us the believing. And you see what, what Godet is doing is he's already understood what Paul is saying. Faith is not a doing. Faith is not your work of merit. Faith is your response. And you see the gospel has been placed before you like a ripe fruit. And what will be your response? Will you take it by faith and say, Lord, I thank thee for sending me thy son on the cross? That is faith. Or will you join yourself with that rabble of people who just wanted him dead and wanted him gone? That was their response. That's the faith. And then I want to end by our point three, confessing with your mouth. This will be a, a quick point, but just bringing in this reality. So, so believing in your heart, we saw the major themes of Christ that we are to believe, that we are to trust. And then thirdly, confessing with your mouth. Where does this come from? What, why is Paul now speaking of confession? He already spoke of, of not having a righteousness after a law. It sounds like it's something we're doing. Well, the way to explain is like, like I said, it's a, it's a, if faith is a reaction to all that God has done, confession is a reaction of faith. Um, when, when Thomas Hooker puts it this way, if a man is saved within, we're dealing now with a true believer, Someone who's already looked to the merits of Christ and, and believed in the Lord Jesus, reacted to what Jesus has done. He's now a true newborn creature. So if a man is saved within, this is his quote, it will break forth at the mouth. And so what we learn is that confession is a proof of true faith. Paul is in no way bringing confession as something that saves us. Because that would mean something of our doing. Because here we are now speaking of, of, of speaking things and saying things and declaring things. And, and it has more to do than just responding to who Christ is. We're, we're now declaring who Christ is for me. Um, Calvin puts it this way. To mark out true faith. See, it's, it's to mark true faith. As that from which this fruit proceeds lest anyone should otherwise lay claim to the empty name of faith alone. For no one can believe with the heart without confessing with the mouth. It is indeed a necessary consequence, but not that which assigns salvation to confession. We're not now speaking of confession as a means by which you are saved. As soon as we do that, we're becoming like the Jews who are after a righteousness based on our own law. Our, our own pursuits. But this confession 
is then, in essence, what Paul is doing here is a little bit of what James does in his book, where he says in his letter, where he says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by works. And he's basically saying, if you say you have faith, but there are no works, you don't live a life of obedience, you're not showing love to your brothers and sisters, well, then that's not true faith. True faith will always have works that follow. And those works never save us. They only prove that our faith is true. And so, young men and women, and all who have professed our faith in Christ, this is a very important point. Basically, Paul is saying, it's not that now we sit there wondering if we have faith just in a, in a mystical sense. We, we need to simply look at our lives very, very logically. And if there are no fruits, then God is showing there is no faith. But if you do confess Jesus as Lord, He's giving you this as, as almost like the key work. It's not, uh, it, it kind of becomes an umbrella for every kind of Christian work. Because if, if I show love to my wife, well, that is a way that I confess Christ as my Lord. Because he's the one who teaches me to love my wife to the point of death. And if I am a good father, that, that is like confessing Christ as Lord. Because it's the Lord who commands me to be a good father. And if I'm not, I must submit to the Lord and go ask forgiveness to my children. And when I'm doing this... I am submitting to Christ as my Lord. Paul is basically saying this confession with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, he's saying this is the overarching fruit of a true believer. You will bow before Jesus as your Lord. How do you confess Christ as Lord? I just want to give three. I gave you a couple little illustrations, but three major points that kind of covers everything of how you confess Christ as Lord. First, by confessing Him as Lord of the entirety of your life. And by necessity, this has to be there, right? He's Lord of my body and Lord of my mind. He's Lord of my thoughts. He's Lord of my intellect, of my time, of my ideas, my vacations, my entertainment. He's the Lord who decides what books I read, what books I don't, what movies I watch, what movies I don't, what listen, what what music comes into my ears, and what musics don't, because He is my Lord, and I submit to to him. And, and, and God's word is full of this principle. Philippians 1 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. I submit to the gospel. My life has to be synonymous, as it were, to the gospel. The word becometh can also be translated worthy. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So that's the first way to confess the Lord, Jesus as Lord, by acknowledging your whole life um, in submission to Him. And secondly, it comes right alongside this. In many ways, it's, it's just applying this by acknowledging, therefore, that you belong to Him. Beloved, I want to emphasize this in a pastoral way. You know, there are people in the life of the church, and if you have been in the church enough, you know you've seen brethren who come and join the church, and before you know it, you don't know where they are. The pastor doesn't know where they are. The elders don't know where they are. 
But they forgot this one reality. That they belong to Jesus. We live in a world that wants to teach you, right? We're being bombarded with this, that you are your own person, your own individual, that what matters most is what you want. The world is all individualistic. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about togetherness, unity. If you profess your faith in Jesus, you are acknowledging that you belong to Jesus. You are acknowledging you are not your own. You are acknowledging that you were bought with a price. You're acknowledging that he's your owner. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. Um, it's by inference. A Christian belongs to all other Christians. He belongs to the church. He prefers the company of Christian people to anyone else in the whole universe. So if you confess your faith in Jesus, you are confessing Him as Lord, you are acknowledging you belong to Him, and you're also acknowledging you belong to the body because all of us acknowledge that we belong to Him. And for the rest of your life, and it's a blessed thing, it's a joyful thing, we are living in a world with a crisis of solitude. In a crisis that leads to depression. And you can be certain that those souls are not living a life of togetherness in Christ and with Christ's people. And if there may be some, because I know there are chemical things connected, but I'm talking in this general way about what we read. It is churchless people who are alone in this world. They are without God. But if you're in Christ... You're in a multitude of company because you belong to him and to his people. And then thirdly, a third way by which we acknowledge Christ as Lord. We submit to him completely. We acknowledge that we belong to him. And thirdly, by not being ashamed of him. This is, this is a classical way that we see in Scripture that we are to not deny Jesus, that we are to call Him our Lord, even if there is the danger of persecution. And because of this danger of persecution, there have been those who were ashamed and who denied Jesus. Um, there was a moment where Paul was in jail, and there were some who were scared of visiting him in jail. Um, in 2 Timothy 1.16, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. There were some ashamed of Paul's chains because they were scared that if they were to go take some food of Paul, they would be snatched and put in jail too. And so, don't ever be ashamed of other believers. Don't ever be ashamed of Christ. Don't ever deny Him. But confess Him as Lord. But always understand, as we have seen, that your confession is not what saves you. It is just an outflow of the faith that God gives to His own, which saves you.
And this is what we're here to also now transition to the confession of your faith. And this confession will not save you. But we trust and we hope that is an outflow of the faith that God gave you as you profess your faith in Jesus, the one who saves you. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we thank Thee, Lord, for Thy Word. We thank Thee that even though it was sad that there were those in the days of Paul who went after seeking to establish their own righteousness, Lord, it, it speaks to our need today because we know that that's the human heart. But we thank Thee, Lord, for this righteousness that is from above. And we thank Thee for this faith that is from above. But help us, Lord, to grasp the reality that even though faith is impossible, there's still this reality that it's so easy because it's Thou hast done everything. Thou hast achieved everything. And we need to but respond. We pray, Lord, that it would bring even a certain repentance to our heart that what makes faith impossible is the hardness of our hearts to respond in such a simple way as, yes, Lord Jesus, I believe and I trust. Lord, give this gift to every heart here who may not have it and strengthen the the gift of faith to every heart that does. And be, Lord, now we pray with Ashley and Anna and Michael and Ryan as they will be answering these words that are put to them. And we pray that Thou, Lord, would, would be their yea and amen in the keeping of these vows from here onward. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.